the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I am Seth. It is Friday, April 14th, 2023. That's the first time, David Dahl, associate producer, you've probably heard the new intro music, or at least commanded it, right? I got a little freaked out for a minute. Did you really? Did we scare you a little bit? Just a bit. All right. All right. Well, welcome back to the uh, the helm. Um, that is, uh, do you know the song? Bird no. Birdland? Birdland. The song is Birdland. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, a call Wednesday generated a lot of heat, still getting emails on it. And that's okay. That's why we're in the kitchen. By the way, David, I wonder, did you know that phrase about if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen comes from Harry Truman? Not surprising. You can kind of hear him saying that. And it's okay, too, to bring the heat. Those who say something brings more heat than light or criticize people for bringing more heat than light betray that they simply have no idea as to what generates light in the first place. It's always heat. You can't have light without heat. But we got some heat here on the discussion from a caller about how ardent and resolute the nobody-but-Trump crowd has become. And that one is a that one is a, is a soft Republican or rhino if, if, if they're not for Trump. The caller, as I... Um, Object and objected to those appellations and ideas fix. What, after all, is so wrong with Ron DeSantis as an option for any number of reasons? We reasoned. He may emphasize, which I wish I didn't have to say, but I say it again, he may have a better chance in a general election, again, for any number of reasons. One email I received, representative of a lot of others, said this country is at a crossroads. Now is not the time for a goes-along-to-get-along Republican. We can have that in 2028. We need someone to grab the bull by the horns and redirect it. Now, if you don't think the FBI is a problem or the border or the Department of Justice or even the 50 percent of Republicans that don't, then perhaps a goes-along-get-along Republican is fine with you. But that just signs the death warrant of this country. We now have a selective prosecution in the United States, and that's a problem. That needs to be taken head on. The FBI is now equal to the KGB and half the Republican Party seems to be just fine with that. That was a representative email. One pro-Trump caller said, and I received a lot of emails backing up a similar point, that Ron DeSantis was a do-nothing congressman before he became governor. That is to say when he was in Congress from 2013 to 2018. I think we need to be careful with some of these allegations and arguments. First off, working backwards, newly elected congressmen usually don't get a lot of attention or legislation done. Here's a test. Who heard of Jim Jordan in 2008 or 2010 or, for that matter, 2012 or 2014? Second, DeSantis, while in Congress, had a 100 percent lifetime rating from the American Conservative Union. In fact, it was higher than Rand Paul's ratings. And what was he doing before he went to Congress? He volunteered for and entered the United States Navy, where he became a lieutenant commander. Do we want to talk about what Donald Trump was doing in 2013? 
This is not to criticize Donald Trump. I helped start two organizations to elect him. I wrote a book defending the election of him and was even offered a job in his administration. I'm just saying be careful of the arguments we make. As for the problems at the DOJ, the border, the FBI, and the rest, who disagrees with any of that? Certainly not Ron DeSantis. He was one of only three governors that tried to do something about the border as a governor and took the heat and a lot of it for trying to do something. As for the DOJ and FBI, did those problems start on Joe Biden's watch? Did the fentanyl problem? Did Deborah Burks work for Joe Biden? Was Anthony Fauci, and for that matter, Deborah Burks, given the run of the coronavirus response under Joe Biden? The answer to all those questions is no. Did universalized mail-in voting take place under Joe Biden when there was an option to withhold federal coronavirus funds to states that deployed it? This is, again, not to criticize Trump. He was a fantastic president. What I wouldn't do for him to be president again. It is to say our standards of perfection have been defined down with a few bits of amnesia here and there. As for DeSantis's governor, not only taking on the illegal immigration issue, he was among the first states to push against the federal requests to keep states closed down during the COVID agonisties and took the heat for that. Let's not have amnesia about that either. And I would say taking on the teachers unions, the most powerful political force in America, as long as, along with the racialization and sex, sexualization of our children in our schools, shows a pretty keen and good understanding not only of the stakes in our culture war or that we are in one, but how to be one of the very few to go right at it, to quote Admiral Nelson, to push back and defeat the onslaught. This is not to say DeSantis is ideal or perfect. It is to say there is no such thing as perfect, and there should be something like a taking it easy as the two battle it out with, as mature conservatives, a view that apprehends we have an embarrassment of riches without such a clear-cut blowout as to who among the two has the better or best credentials. Let's let them make their case with an understanding that to support one over the other is not to abandon conservatism any more than to choose a Cadillac over a Lincoln is to abandon great American luxury vehicles. To choose a ribeye over a New York strip or vice versa is not the embodiment or even close approach to being a vegetarian. I think we ought to take a page from the man who created the modern conservative movement, Barry Goldwater, back when he was a conservative. In 1960, there was an effort to nominate him to the presidency, and it failed. And many at the Republican convention were upset and even threatened to walk away. Barry Goldwater took to the podium and thundered, quote, This country is too important for anyone's feelings. This country and its majesty is too great for any man to stay home and not work just because he doesn't agree. So let's grow up, conservatives. If we want to take this party back and we can, let's go to work. He said the importance of voting for Nixon, who did win the nomination, was to stop his phrase, the Democratic Party's blueprint for socialism. As I like to point out, a blueprint is a design. It's a draft. Today, it's no design or draft. It's active. It's kinetic. And I think some of that is because or Republicans taking their primary losses too personally and allowing to do and allowing Democrats to do what Democrats do, which is unite without cavil or complaint. We seem to create impossible to meet standards of perfection here on our side, where the 90 percent we agree with is not enough for us to line up behind and vote against the 100 percent we do not agree with.
course, by 1964, when Goldwater did get the nomination, it was the liberal establishment Republicans that did not return the favor of support to Barry Goldwater that he sought for Nixon four years earlier. It's only gotten worse since then in this decisive sense. Then there was a revulsion to the idea of communism, and by both parties, though one would invite its general precepts into its party while the other would abjure them. Today, the revulsion has faded and is over. Then, not a member of any elected office could call themselves a socialist in America. Today, there are a minimum of five socialists in our House of Representatives, self-proclaimed. One in the U.S. Senate, self-proclaimed, who became the runner-up to be the nominee for the president of the Democratic ticket and now chairs the powerful Health, Education, Labor Committee, after chairing the Senate Budget Committee, and also there are some 40 or so self-identifying members of the socialist movement serving in state houses across the country. With no denunciation from the Democratic leadership, in fact, the leadership gives them endorsements and financial support, even over and against their non-socialist primary opponents when they have them. That is what we are fighting. And I think DeSantis and Trump supporters, as well as Trump and DeSantis, with varying emphases and qualities, are fighting as well. Dennis Prager is right. There is a cultural civil war going on. Pat Buchanan got in trouble in 1992 for saying something very close to that. We need to remember, Buchanan didn't call for a war. He described one, and he did it in the context of losing the primaries to George H.W. Bush as moderate a Republican as we've seen in our lifetimes. And what did he say? I'll quote him. But note, he said it in the service of saying we all had to work for George H.W. Bush. Here's Buchanan after losing to Bush in 1992. Quote, my friends, this election is about more than who gets what. It is about who we are. It is about what we believe and what we stand for as Americans. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. As critical to the kind of nation we shall be as was the Cold War itself. For this war is for the soul of America. And that struggle for the soul of America, in that struggle for the soul of America, Clinton and Clinton are on the other side and George Bush is on our side. And so to the Buchanan brigades, brigades out there, we have to come home and stand behind George Bush. Close quote. Well, we didn't, and we got the Clintons. When we did stand behind George Bush four years earlier, we got Clarence Thomas. Let me end with a little more Goldwater from 1960. He said, quote, The true Republican philosophy is a dynamic, compelling doctrine, dealing with the full nature of man and not with his material needs alone. It is the living, unquenchable spirit of the American Revolution. The touchstone is freedom. The goals, the improvement of both man and his society, the nurturing of spiritual and intellectual capacity, the expansion of creative opportunity, the perpetuation of that concept of limited central government, which provides a climate for maximum social and individual progress, close quote. That is what we stand for. That is what we stand for. And just because someone supports someone other than Trump and believes those things does not mean they don't believe those things. The truth is, you find me a candidate with no Achilles heels, and I'll find you utopia. And then I'll remind you that the etymology of utopia is literally that which does not exist. Let the primaries go forward, but let us not start 
with a priori questionings of good conservatives' commitments to great conservatism. As an embarrassment of riches that we have, we should not be confused with or traded in for a pride of poverty. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Speaking of the culture wars, it's always interesting to me when lefties say, why are you conservatives starting these culture wars when we object to things like the branding and extrapolation and, frankly, exhaustion of people like Dylan Mulvaney across traditional American brands like Anheuser-Busch. It's always amusing to me that when we object to something they do, we're starting the war. It's like they're starting history on a baseball game at the ninth inning. Seemed to me they were pretty animated in changing a lot of corporate labels themselves, weren't they? A couple years ago, didn't they go about changing names of professional athletic associations and everything from syrup to rice? Interesting story just came out with the head of uh, Anheuser-Busch putting out a statement today. Ariel Zilber writes that Anheuser-Busch's top executive today offered an apology flatter than a day-old Bud Light as the beer giant reels from the backlash over its sponsorship with controversial transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney. CEO Brendan Whitworth said, quote, we never intended to be part of a discussion that divides people. We are in the business of bringing people together over a beer, close quote. Whitworth's statement made no mention of the sponsorship deal with Mulvaney, which has led to calls for a boycott of the nation's largest beer company. He also didn't address reports that senior executives were kept in the dark about the Mulvaney rollout. Instead, Whitworth said he was, quote, focused on building and protecting our remarkable history and heritage. Moving forward, I will continue to work tirelessly to bring great beers to consumers across our nation, close quote. Um, The reaction on social media to Whitworth's statement was scathing. Let's see. One Twitter user wrote, quote, I get the idea of bringing all kinds of people together. That's awesome. However, it shows a lack of understanding for biological women. When you put a biological man in place of a woman, that is a slap to real women. That is division. Another wrote, nope, not good enough. Boycott continues until full apology. Whitworth's statement comes as the beer colossus has seen its market value plummet by about $5 billion since the campaign was launched April 1st. The company had previously defended its decision to hire Mulvaney, an actress and influencer with more than 10 million followers on TikTok. Uh, One Anheuser-Busch spokesman said, quote, Anheuser-Busch works with hundreds of influencers across our brands as one of many ways to authentically connect with audiences across various demographics. From time to time, we produce unique commemorative cans for fans and for brand influencers like Dylan Mulvaney. This commemorative can was a gift to celebrate a personal milestone. It's not for sale to the general public. Interesting, if it's not for sale to the general public. 
why they're releasing videos and pictures of it. Um, Sam made a point on the show yesterday that I don't think anyone else has been making, at least I haven't seen or heard, which is this is the celebration of someone whose transition took place over the year. They've been at this for a year, a year. In other words, a year ago, Dylan Mulvaney was a man or a boy. That's point one. Point two, you watch any of these TikTok videos, and I think Sam's right about this too. It's more than a burlesque. It almost does seem like acting. It's the treatment of women in a way that stereotypes the kind of thing that every women's group has been fighting, at least that I've been noticing, for at least the past 60 years. When Dylan Mulvaney talks the way he thinks women talk and makes fun of the things he makes fun of, I don't know any women who thinks that's a good caricature of what women think, say, and do. It's almost as if it's from a cartoon from the 1930s. It's the reason there was a feminist movement, to get rid of those kind of caricatures and stereotypes. It's highly odd. And for those who think that we are unduly spending time or spending time unduly reacting to this, the question is at what point I'll talk to Josh Hammer later in the show. He had a essay about this. The question is, at what point do you say, stop it, it's enough? We may be in a world, as Governor Sanders put it in Arkansas, where this is not about left versus right anymore. This is about normal and crazy and making the crazy normal. Um, there is a, um, there is, Sam is right about this too. A lot of writings coming out and a lot of, there are a lot of writings coming out and a lot of essays coming out from people who went through the transgender experience, including with medications and including with surgeries, whose warnings to us, we should be heeding. And we should be heeding very seriously, especially when you see the kinds of legislation that is being proposed in places like California, Assembly Bill 655, which could take children from parents and would, if it passes, if the parents stand in the way of their underage child's decision to engage in transgender processes and procedures. We may have moved to this point very fast over the last five years, but the stop needs to start here. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, 602-508-0960. Anything on your mind, feel free to give us a call. Open lines Friday. You want to hear how this happens, this kind of thing happens? Here's how it happens. Op-ed from uh, Gregory, uh, Gregory Angelo in the Wall Street Journal. 
from a couple of days ago. I helped make corporations woke, and I regret it. The politicalization of everything is too high a price for the advances in 2010. He writes, I sat in the Washington office of a major airline's head of government relations, where we were joined by the top lobbyist for one of America's largest hotel chains. It was 2013, and I was president of the gay conservative group Log Cabin Republicans. I had come to secure corporate support for the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, which would have banned discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Pressure from leading corporations, I correctly assumed, would push waffling Republicans to vote for the legislation. What business did airlines and hotel chains have weighing in on gay rights legislation? None. In fact, doing so could even be bad business, as the lobbyist explained. Quote, we already have a longstanding LGBT non-discrimination policy, which actually puts us at a competitive advantage as a more appealing employer for gay people. Close quote. But count us in, the hotel representative said, avoiding the public flogging the company would take if it failed to support the bill was worth the cost of losing an edge in hiring months later. The legislation passed. If the gay rights movement in the U.S. didn't ignite the trend of corporations taking stands on cultural issues, it was definitely a prime accelerant. And I was there writing op-eds that declared corporate backing for gay causes was a sign of success. It was also completely unnecessary. Market forces organically shaped a culture in which almost every American now believes in equal job opportunities for gay people. And we'd have same-sex marriage in all 50 states today with or without 379 major corporations filing friend-of-the-court briefs with the Supreme Court. The trend I helped begin, I now realize, was a disaster. In the past three years, major U.S. corporations have weighed in on everything from abortion and Black Lives Matter to election laws, even as the American public overwhelmingly wishes they wouldn't. A 2021 report by the Brunswick Group found that 63% of corporate executives felt unequivocally that companies should speak out on social issues, while only 36% of Americans agree. A recent journal poll found that 63% of respondents wished that companies wouldn't take public stands on political and social issues. Corporate activism turns off consumers and exposes C-suite hypocrisy. Companies demand equity in America while profiting from human rights abuses in China or underwriting abortions for employees while maintaining anemic maternity leave policies or issuing proclamations of anti-racism by all white executive teams. Institutions' obsequiousness to left-wing causes has also had a chilling effect on public discourse. An August 2022 populist study found an alarming prevalence of self-silencing as Americans conceal or misrepresent their private views to avoid conflict and assure colleagues they hold the approved opinion. Self-silencing destroys social trust, Todd Rose, populist's co-founder notes, and it tends to historically make social progress all but impossible. Overcoming self-silencing requires turning against the forces that brought us here. American consumers need to call CEOs out for the chasm between their sermonizing and the scant public support for it. Decent Americans must unite and deliver an unequivocal message. If you want to get political, run for office. Otherwise, 
Focus on the product and the bottom line. My own efforts, he writes, are no longer spent in boardrooms with executives and lobbyists. Instead, I have been rallying grassroots activists so we can take on corporations' double standards and push them back to neutrality. Holding corrupt institutions accountable is penance for my part in getting America into this mess. These days, I'm committed to getting us out of it. Well done. Well said. Amen. I just wish we would have learned those lessons before we had to come to them too late. Because you know what? These lefties that were pushing these things that have come to our point of view, it's not as if we weren't saying it and trying to teach them then. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. A lot of you may not have noticed, but uh, U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein has uh, been out of Washington, D.C. for a prolonged absence due to her health. Two Democratic representatives uh, this week, um, Dean Phillips of Minnesota and Ro Khanna of California, called for her to step down and be replaced. Um, it's interesting that when they did so, the liberal media said there's a sexism to this. Why wouldn't they ask that John Fetterman, who's also been out for weeks, also uh, be required to step down? To which my response is, fine, satisfy the equation. Have them all out of there. There is, however, a distinguishing issue between Fetterman and Feinstein, Um, Both may be unable to do their job, but one is a matter really of age and the other something quite else. On the issue of age, it's going to be an issue with elected leaders, and it's a delicate one. Andrew Sullivan has a great piece up today, I think dealing with it with all due due, uh, decorum. He says there's a balance between resisting decline and accepting it and enjoying what's left. But the balance seems to get very skewed by power. Here, for example, is a recent description of Senator Dianne Feinstein. Quote on her mo- – and where is that from? It's from the Washington Post. Here uh, – excuse me, quote, on her most difficult days, she does not seem to recognize even longtime colleagues, close quote. Feinstein, Sullivan writes, has been absent from the Senate for a while now, and she refuses to quit, even as her party's judicial nominees linger. She's older at 89 than my mom. She'll allow a temporary replacement, but good luck getting anyone to sign off on that. Chuck Grassley is also 89 and just won his eighth term in the Senate. Does he think he's Methuselah? Bernie Sanders is 81. And there's some buzz that he might run in 2024 if Biden does it. Then we have Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, 81, who just had his second fall, like many octogenarians, and has also been out for a month until this morning. Feinstein has been in the Senate for over three decades. McConnell has had his Kentucky seat even longer, since 1985. 34 senators are now 70 or older well past retirement age in all advanced countries. It's the second oldest Senate since 1789. It's not a flaw to admit your age and quit after 
good innings with your faculties still intact. Even the last pope did it. Nancy Pelosi resisted forever, but finally put down her gavel at the age of 82, saying, quote, For me, the hour has come for a new generation to lead Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect, close quote. Not so hard, huh? You can probably guess what's coming. It's a mark of total dysfunction that a young country will probably be forced to pick between octogenarians for the presidency next time around. The oldest age of a president before Biden was Ronald Reagan. He was 77 when he left office. A recent poll found that 68% of registered voters feel that Biden is too old for another term. A poll in September found that 73% of Americans want an age limit for public office. The most favored limit? 70. That was, by the way, the same age as Ben Franklin when he signed the Declaration of Independence, the oldest of the 56 signatories whose average age was just 44. Seems about right to me, Sullivan writes. For men the ages of our possible candidates for president, they're doing pretty remarkably. But they're both well past their best. It's perfectly natural. But what are they trying to prove by never quitting? It's an interesting question, folks. It's an interesting and serious one. And I wonder where you stand on it and what you think of it. Of course, too. There's going to be something uncomfortable, which I'm a little surprised Andrew Sullivan does not also write about. And it's one that we've talked about more about in the past than we have in, oh, I don't know, the last 10 years or so. And it's the issue of Supreme Court justices and their age. Remember what happened with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Everyone thought, or at least most liberals thought, it would be a really good idea for her to wait out the election of 2016 so that Hillary, excuse me, wait out the election of 2020 because the thinking was that Hillary Clinton would replace her when she won, ran and won in 2016. She bet wrong. They bet poorly. And Donald Trump got to name Ruth Bader Ginsburg's successor, not President Hillary Clinton. This was the problem of being well past your expiration date as a Supreme Court justice who played a political game and lost. Politics should not be so important that we have to watch the continual embarrassment of people on the public stage. I don't know any Democrats that don't snicker a little bit about Joe Biden's foibles. I don't know any Democrats who don't think he is compromised by his age, mentally or otherwise. I don't know any of them, and I know a lot of Democrats. It's not a dirty little secret, because it's not a secret. The only people who seem to be buying this excuse that Joe Biden is able to perform his duties are his wife and his closest of inner circles. Inner circles we never hear from, by the way. And I think that's a dangerous thing, too. There is a bad joke going on. It's not a secret, but it's a bad joke. And it's that 
everybody knows the emperor has no clothes. And it seems that there is this steady race toward the bottom where the only way to make Joe Biden look good is to have a spokesman who makes him sound like he's a 45-year-old rhetorician at the top of his game. It seems to be the only way to make Joe Biden look good is to have Karen Jean-Pierre, who is even less able to talk than he is, be his representative and his mouthpiece to the press. There is no reason Joe Biden can't hold a press conference other than the fact that he can't hold a press conference. That is the reason. These bets and these gambles have a bad way of hurting Democrats, and I'm not in the business of trying to help them, but they're maintaining and holding on to him the way he's holding on to his mental abilities, i.e., with dear life, is a huge mistake. It's hugely damaging to this country, and it's hugely damaging to this country's interests abroad. With this administration so weak, it's uh, not surprising how badly the um, economy is looking, whether we're talking about the banks or the stock markets or recession our friends at we, Y-Refi have an investment in a portfolio that's got a high fixed rate of return, and it's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed. It's a portfolio, an investment where you can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio that delivers an up to 10.25% rate of return. Y-Refi is local. I encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road and the 101. I've been there several times. I can tell you you will not get a sales pitch, and no one's going to ask you to sign anything. When you meet the team at Y-Refi, you'll see why I like and trust them so much. As I say, a due diligence-approved firm offering an up to 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888 888- why refi 34 you know you want to know how um how we how we get conspiracy theories in this country you want to know how we get extremism in this country i know the natural inclination is for the media to press f7 and write that it's the republican party and its leadership it's not just today just today, Vice President Kamala Harris, speaking at uh, the National Action Network annual convention, you know you know who that is, right? That's Al Sharpton's group. She said, extremists are attacking American freedoms. They ban books to attempt to erase America's full history. They attack the ability of people to love openly with pride. And they sign extremist legislation against women. None of this is true. Not any part of it. None of it. None of it. And this gets applause. And this is what keeps her popular, of course, within the precincts of left-wing extremism. You know, it is interesting, which has now become dominant in the Democratic Party. What's interesting to me is when they push those F7 macros, figuratively, not literally, 
when they push those F7 macros, blaming the Republican Party for these things, will they not look at this and say one word even about the fact that the vice president is giving Al Sharpton this kind of credibility by speaking at his annual convention? There's an NRA convention right now. See how much press is written about the extremism of the NRA versus the extremism of Al Sharpton and his entire life's work and career. Don't go away. A lot more coming right up. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 